All right, we are studying through uh, the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. If you're joining us online or if you're joining us today and haven't been part of that study, I'm going to introduce you to a big fancy word in the Bible. It's, it's not used a lot in the Bible, but it's extremely significant. And it's not a word you use in your everyday conversations. It's the word propitiation. How many guys have never even heard of that word, right? But it's a very, very important word. But I want to I start us before we get to that word in Hebrews with this reality. Remember, Hebrews is written for a reason. It exists for a New Testament audience. We're not the primary audience. But the audience that was originally there, they were going through a hard time. And these particular words are crafted to help them make it through their hard time. You know, it's like, what, what would you say to people who are in a bad place, losing hope, feeling like they just can't take another step, can't go on? All right, so we started Hebrews by looking at Hebrews chapter 12, the encouragement to all believers in this New Testament setting. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Right? Remember that call, that summons for all of us? Looking to Jesus, right? So we're going to have to endure some things. That's in this letter. It's in the New Testament. How are we going to do that? We're going to look to Jesus. And in multiple places in the New Testament, you're going to hear the phrase, consider him. But if I were to ask you to consider Jesus, what exactly would you consider about him? What would come to mind? You know, we're all coming from different places. We, we've, we've had Jesus, his name hung in our background, gotten around our lives at some level. So, so maybe you'd pull up something from your past, your understanding from what you were raised in and what you got around. And maybe you came from a, a, a real traditional church setting and you grew up in that. And so for you, church has got a lot of traditional elements in it. Maybe it's got some boundaries and beliefs and practices. Maybe people were supposed to behave a certain way, dress a certain way, talk a certain way. And for you, you saw that associated with Jesus and it stuck out a lot to you. And so for you, church has got a lot of sort of ritual and expectations and boundaries for you. So when I say consider Jesus... There are some people, when you say that to them, they're revolted by it. They want to run from it with everything in them. Because whatever's come in the mind is not really helpful. Right? I mean, like many of you guys, I grew up in New Orleans. I grew up Roman Catholic. So at some point I'm borrowing, considering Jesus from my great aunt who's, you know, in church. And she is a certain way. And she talks about God. And she talks about religion. She talks about the saints a certain way. She talks about stuff on the outside a certain way. So consider Jesus meant I'm going to pull up that file and consider something about him. Maybe you grew up in a mainline denominational setting, right? So today that means you grew up in a church that's become more and more and more open to the ideas that are in our world today, right? I mean, just, I don't want to, I'm not trying to pick on denominations. I just want to get us to think for a second. So, you know, if, if you met uh, John Wesley, who is the originator, starter of Methodism, uh, he would not recognize Methodism today. It has moved and changed. Its ideas and its influence and its doctrines are so different today. He would stand wondering that can't possibly be churches and pastors who believe the same thing I believed. right? Because there there's much more in mainline denominational today. Uh, the, the influence of a culture that has some ideas about what's important. What's religiously to be associated with. With God, What are the things that we need to be open to? And what things do we need to not be open to when it comes to thinking about this Jesus? Uh, you live in America. You have been part of something that really hasn't always dominated the religious culture, but it has in the last few decades. You could be considering Jesus in a political light. You could be thinking about Jesus, you know, think, consider him. You're going through hard times, consider him. And what comes to mind sounds like Republican things or, or progressive ideas. 
that are in governments and associated with Jesus. And that could be where you start. That's not what the writer of Hebrews had in mind, right? When you hear the writer of Hebrews, he's going to ask you to consider some things about Jesus and he's going to use big words like propitiation. And that word is massively important. But you can't get propitiation unless you get a little bit of the backstory of that word. So I'm going to start where the Apostle Paul started this morning. And I'm going to read you just a little bit from, from Romans, who also uses this word propitiation. So what was Paul's perspective? If Paul was going to consider Jesus, what would he ask us to consider about him. It's going to be very similar to what the writer of Hebrews asks us to consider. Romans, please fall in love with the book of Romans. Uh, it, it is, I think I put in your outline there, it's like Beethoven's fifth. I mean, it's like this classic of all classics. It uniquely sticks out in the Bible. Everything is God's inspired word, but I just got to tell you, Romans is chock full of things that will clarify a lot about God, ourselves, our world, what we believe. So here's where the Apostle Paul starts as he interacts with this topic, and he starts Romans this way, in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. That's a big word. Don't ever read past that word too quickly. That salvation word is a describing word of your life, what you believe. Remember in Hebrews, we've come across it, this great salvation, pointing to Jesus as pointing to a great salvation. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, this is interesting. Hebrews is going to do this to us as well. But when it comes to interacting with man's problem, where does this Bible start? When it wants to unpack good news for us, where does it start to unpack that? Well, Romans starts in the right place. It starts with God, who he is, what he is like it, if you will, Paul calibrates everything he's about to say here. He's going to present the gospel. We're all familiar with that word. We've heard that word a lot, but he's going to calibrate that word by associating it with two other words in it. The righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is the good news. That's what that word means. It means good news. But in this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. Something about God's nature and quality of who he is is revealed in this thing called the gospel. Right? That word righteousness in the Greek, it means in a broad sense, the state of him who is as he ought to be. I don't think I put this in your notes. The state of him who is as he ought to be. Righteousness has to do with things as they ought to be. The condition acceptable to God. A state approved of God. Righteousness means things are as they ought to be and they are approved by God. So to determine something that is righteous is very much to start with God. You have to start with God. To figure out what was this thing supposed to be? What was it intended for? Is that as it ought to be as God ordained his existence? That's what righteousness is about. It's a little more complicated than right and wrong. It's got right and wrong in it. But the second you lose God and have a conversation about right and wrong, then the question becomes who gets to determine what's right 
and what's wrong. Righteousness is a helpful word because it's a little bit more complicated. You can't figure out what righteousness is if you remove God from the conversation. Righteousness has to do with God, what he's like and what he has created and what he has decreed to exist. So gospel gets presented here. And two other words immediately get plugged into gospel. If you want to understand the gospel, you cannot understand them without these two words. Immediately, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he turns around and he installs two words. One's righteousness and the other one is wrath. Paul does that. Not some medieval preacher, not some antiquated person who's out of step, Paul, the apostle inspired by the Holy spirit. When gospel comes out of his mouth, righteousness comes out and wrath comes out as well. Now we're pretty familiar with gospel. We use that word. Even if you're not around the Bible, they haven't been to church very much. You've heard of something gospel, gospel music, you know, you've heard of gospel, something, and, and in the church, you've heard a lot of the word gospel in the last couple of decades. Gospel has been featured, 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 featured. Righteousness, not so much. Wrath, not at all. When was the last time you heard anybody talk on the wrath of God? Well, after today, you'll be able to say uh, the end of August. Um, But again, this is not a hobby horse. This is Paul saying, hey, if you want to get the gospel, you're going to have to get righteousness, which comes from God. And you have to get wrath because it informs these, the word we're going to get to, propitiation. It's going to inform those words. What exactly is wrath? Well, I'm going to unpack it a little bit here. But in my engineering mind, wrath is, is a bit of a reaction of a holy, righteous God to the presence of unrighteousness. It's a, it's, a, it's a reaction, if you will. And the Bible tries to describe God this way when it turns around and says, remember, our God is a consuming fire, right? You've heard the Bible say that over and over and over again. What is something, <clears throat> what's the image of something being a consuming fire? Well, if you set fire next to that thing, that fire will consume it. That thing will go up in flames, Right? Well, what is wrath? Well, wrath for me is easily best described as imagine filling your house, you know, you do this by accident with natural gas, right? Somehow the hose breaks on the back of your stove and fills your house with natural gas. And you put a spark in that house. What's going to happen? Boom! Right? You're going to have this combustion moment. Well, that's kind of the way in which the Bible describes God in his righteousness reacting to unrighteousness. It is explosive. It is intense. It is not casual. It has intensity attached to it. Because by nature, God is something. Well, he is righteous and he's also a consuming fire. So if God gets in proximity to unrighteousness because of his righteousness there will be a reaction whether you and i understand it fully like it or not it has to do with the nature of who god is wayne grudem in his systematic theology says although god's punishment of sin serves as a deterrent against further sinning and as a warning to those who observe it this is not the primary reason why God punishes sin. I don't want to read any further, just for a second. Does your God punish sin? Do you have an understanding that the God who created everything punishes sin? Or is that like, you know, I don't know that I feel that way. Okay, I understand. Gritham goes on and says, the primary reason is that God's righteousness demands it so that he might be glorified in the universe that he has created. 
He is the Lord who practices, listen, quote from Jeremiah 9. He practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the prophet Jeremiah would not be alone in highlighting the fact that when you take God and consider him, right? Because we're being asked to consider Jesus this morning. When you consider him, you are considering a God who comes right out and says, he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And in these things, he delights in these things. He delights in these things. He delights in all of these things. He doesn't just delight in one of these things. And do you know which one we would like to have him delight in to the exclusion of the others? We would like for him to delight in steadfast love. And by the way, he does. You have never met another being who will love you with the intensity with which God loves you. And you will also never meet another being who will bring justice and righteousness upon the earth with the intensity that this God will do that as well. He delights in these things. We sang the song, how vast the love of Jesus. You understand we could just change those words and say, how vast the justice of Jesus, how vast the righteousness of Jesus. And God would be equally pleased if we sang that about him. He does not subscribe to some 2023 idea that, oh God, we think you're awesome because you love a certain way. But we got a fairly low opinion about your justice and your righteousness. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. It seems a little narrow. I don't really care for that part as much. Does this make sense to you that we would do this to God? That we would approach the God who says, I delight in all these things. And we would say, but we don't delight in all those things. You know, it's interesting When you study the theological background of the word propitiation, there is a little movement of some theologians who don't care for where that word goes. And so they resist it. And when you try to get them to explain it, they don't explain it from the Bible. They explain it from the idea that a God who is loving and merciful the way God is, he would not do what propitiation requires him to do. He would not do that. Why? Because he's loving and merciful. Well, you're going to see all over these passages today. God can be both. Anybody here just want God's love to just be real tepid and indifferent? Matter of fact, he may not even get around to it. He may just blow it off. He might sweep it under the rug. He might forget to love you. But isn't that what we hope God does with his justice? Or his righteousness. Hey God, can you just kind of dial that back a little bit? How many guys want God to dial back his righteousness and his justice? But we don't want him to dial back his love. You understand, God's not dialable. Right? God is these things. He is righteous. And when that righteousness gets anywhere around unrighteousness, combustion is going to take place. It's the nature of God and the nature of unrighteousness. When they get near each other, they're not going to get along. It's going to be explosive. And the term we're going to use is wrath. You know, you and I are living in a unique moment, at least unique in my life, because it didn't always feel this way. But, you know, there's a little bit of a Justice League movement going on in our midst. I don't mean the hero, superhero comic people. Justice League in the sense of people who are championing justice. Justice all of a sudden is a cool thing. It used to not be, but it's kind of cool now. Now, it's only cool for about four or five particular forms of behavior in the human universe. Then we want justice, right? So it's not unfamiliar for us to hear a crowd chanting, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. We want justice. 
If you stood outside the courtroom in some massive moment where a tragic story has been told about maybe a child who was abducted and mistreated horribly and some serial killer is part of that storyline and then the family gets interviewed while the, the case is going on and they say this into the microphone, we just want justice. Everybody gets that, don't we? There's something in us that says, yeah, that's right. Wait, you don't want to just dial back justice in that moment and make it go sit in the corner so that the serial killer can be loved? You don't want that? Well, part of us, right, as Christians, feel a little conflicted right now, don't we? And I say it that way. Well, you, you, well yeah, because we're, you know, I guess we're called to love, so I, I don't know. Hey, the God of the universe does justice. He does justice. I delight in justice, God says. I delight in righteousness, God says. So the serial killer, he's not just getting love. He's going to get justice. And there's something in us that says, yeah, that's right. That feels right, man. That's why we cry for it and we're comfortable with it. And the fact that you and I have an ounce of registration, that when that kind of wrong is done, something besides cuddling up with it and loving it should be done too. And we're comfortable with that. And then Paul points that out in Romans chapter 2. He's just highlighted the gospel in its association with righteousness and wrath. He gets one chapter later, he opens chapter 2 with these words. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, everyone who uses a standard to say something is right and something else is wrong, something's acceptable and something is not. God says you have no excuse. You recognize there is right and wrong in this world. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, you practice the very same things. Now in this context, it doesn't mean you're a serial killer too. No, no, no. It means you're unrighteous too. That person over there is unrighteous. So are you. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The Bible teaches that the justice, the judgment of God rightly falls. It's not wrong for God to judge evil. It's right for him to do that. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you notice this verse does not jettison one uncomfortable set of words for a set of more comfortable set of words when it describes God. It describes in verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God is kind. God is forbearing. God is patient. And yet wrath and judgment are in the same passage with him because God is righteous. And he will respond to unrighteousness with fury. The intensity of his love is matched by the crushing intensity of how God responds to evil and sin. It is part of who God is. These things coexist. Let me give you a quick buckle up seatbelt moment of, of primer on the wrath of God that's going to get us to something that's super important as we celebrate communion today. In the Old Testament, you don't get very far out of the starting blocks without coming in contact with the judgment of God against sin. 
as soon as sin makes its debut, judgment greets it in the Garden of Eden. Please notice when you go back and read Genesis chapter 3 that these are not just impersonal consequential elements as though God explained to Eve, hey, look, I told you there was this thing called gravity. And if you drop your cell phone, the screen's going to crack. And what would you do, Eve? You drop the cell phone and the screen cracked. Now, that makes God really innocent, doesn't it? God's outside of that scenario. Eve didn't follow instructions. There's some kind of cosmic force called gravity. Where'd that come from anyway? And if you don't cooperate with the natural elements of creation, there will be consequences in your life. That's not Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 has God visiting judgment on everybody who's guilty. Eve gets visited judgment in a particular way. Adam gets visited with judgment in a particular way. And Satan gets visited with judgment in a particular way. God judged sin from its outset. It is the way God reacts to unrighteousness because of who he is. If you traced the concepts of God's wrath and God's anger throughout the Old Testament, you would find it spoken of a lot, right? If I just grab three sections of the Old Testament, the narrative historic section, the Psalms, and the prophets, here's what you would hear. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 17. Because they have forsaken me, God says, and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. God points out his anger and his wrath in many places in the Old Testament. Psalm 38, written by King David, says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. This is the same David who could write, surely mercy and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. It's not as though he's some grim preacher who only has some hellfire and brimstone version of God that he knows and he just presents it everywhere and every time he gets a chance to. He writes one of the most beloved Psalms that we've ever read about the mercy and the loving kindness of God following me. But he stares into that same God and he says these words, Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Is your God ever angry? Or have you subscribed to a 2023 American God who's nothing like this? If you got a 2023 American God, the word propitiation today is going to mean nothing to you. You're not going to sing about it, celebrate it, or think it's a big deal. But if this is who God is, it's massive. Isaiah, the prophet, verse 13, chapter 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger. Wouldn't it just be enough, Isaiah, just to say anger? Oh, no, no. Fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophar. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken of its, out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Says the prophet Isaiah. Do I want to listen to the prophet Isaiah 
Or do I want to listen to some Johnny come lately today tell me that God could never sound that way? How could a God who's so loving ever sound that way? I'd rather just scratch my head and go, I don't know, but he does. Before I butcher the word of God and make it say something it's not saying in order to create some version of God that I'm more comfortable with. Leon Morris wrote a book on the atonement, which the atonement is the the dealing with removing and covering of our sin. He says, in the Old Testament, more than 20 words are used of the wrath of God. Total number of references to God's wrath exceeds 580, so that it cannot be said to be an occasional topic. If we are to be true to the Old Testament, we cannot lightly discard or overlook the teaching that God is personally angry in the face of all evil. It is one of the facts of life that God is always hostile to evil. Wrath may be his, quote, strange work, Isaiah, with the implication that mercy is more congenial, but it is his work. We do ourselves a disservice if we shut our eyes to the fact. The conclusion to which all this drives us is that in the Old Testament, the wrath of God receives some emphasis. It is invariably aroused by human sin. And if people are to be forgiven, then the fact of the wrath must be taken into consideration. It does not fade away by being given some other name or regarded as an impersonal process. Like, oops, gravity took over. And stuff just happens when you disobey God. What if some of that stuff happens because the personal God of the universe brings judgment on sin and this world is lit up with judgment? That would prepare me helpfully for the day that I stand before that God with an awareness that he doesn't cozy up to evil and sin. What am I going to do when I stand before this God that I'm aware he actually does respond in fierce anger and wrath? What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to consider Jesus today and then I'm going to have hope, right? All right, that's Old Testament. New Testament, let me just give you one particular highlight that pulls from the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to celebrate communion today. These words are massively important as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross. And you and I are very much in touch with blood being shed and nails piercing skin and bone and nerves. And we are in touch with that. He is in touch with something much weightier. My soul, Jesus said, is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this cup that he is praying about? What is in this cup? Well, the imagery of the cup would have been well known, right? You would have quickly understood the cup being described in this moment. Isaiah the prophet would have already spoken of it hundreds of years earlier. When he says, wake yourself, Isaiah says, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord. Where did it come from? Natural consequences? No, no. You have drunk something from the hand of the Lord. This is personal. This has come from God. The cup of his wrath. Who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. The cup of his wrath, right? I mean, I don't know how to put this into an adequate. I don't know how big this cup has got to be. But it's got to be made of something serious. Because what you're putting into it is the furious response of God to evil and sin. Every last act of sin that was unrighteous, this righteous God is responding to it. And his response is put into that cup. 
It's that cup that Jesus stares at. And he says, Father, if it's possible, for me not to drink that. Of course, the most massive prayer you and I sit in gratitude for is, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. What was the cup? It was the furious wrath of God against sin. Leon Morris says, if we speak of propitiation, we are thinking of a personal process. We are saying that God is angry when people sin and that if they are to be forgiven, something must be done about that anger. The word propitiation is the Greek word halaskomai. It's a common word in the Greek and it means the turning away of anger. So what we're about to read in Hebrews about this turning away of anger. There's a reason why this anger had to be turned away. And if you visit the Bible casually, you don't even have to be a serious student of the Bible. You are going to find wrath, judgment, and penalty throughout it. So my question is, why? Why go through the effort of trying to eliminate wrath and judgment and anger? Why reject what so clearly is in the Bible? Why make it feel so unfashionable? Why act as though there's no way God could possibly be that way? Is there anything about God that you haven't figured out? I'm just curious. You know, the God that I have completely figured out is the one that I create. That God, I can, I can explain everything to you about him. Because I created him. He came out of all my ideas. But the God of the universe who is eternal, who is revealed in scripture, I can't explain everything about him. Are there things that I'm uncomfortable with? Yes, plenty of them. It's when I go to make God in my image after my own likableness, not even likeness. There are certain things that I like. I would like God to be that way. So therefore, I will have him have this characteristic and this characteristic and this characteristic, but not this one and not this one. Can, can I just tell you, that's a fake relationship with the true God. You don't get to turn him into something that he's not in order to love him. Does that sound horrible to you too? Oh, I am. I just love God. So can Keith come back up and let's just worship God. The, the one that I believe in who doesn't measure out righteousness like that. And there's no justice in him. I love that God. Keith, come lead us in a song for that God. God's not looking to be loved that way. He presents himself as who he is and he invites us to worship and love him. He doesn't reinvent himself, nor does he invite us to reinvent him. No matter how distasteful we may find something about him. That cup of wrath is real. And it comes from the character and nature of God and his holiness and righteousness. And it is what Jesus Christ drank on our behalf because it was real. It wasn't some fake thing. It was the real. So why does this matter? Because we're being told to consider Jesus in this passage. Consider what about him? Consider this about him. This is the writer of Hebrews. He's trying to show up in your pain, in your difficulties in life. And he's bringing this to your attention. Now that might not be the Jesus I'd like to have show up. I'd like to consider the genie in a bottle Jesus. Hebrews, can you unpack some of that to me? You know, it kind of sounds like the health and wealth gospel. It sounds like if you just tap into how to use the force, you can, you can change all your pain into triumph. You can become the head, not the tail. You can have this and have this, and you can have health, and you can have wealth, and you can make everything in your life a happy story. You just need to figure out how to get around Jesus and use his power. I'd rather have that Jesus. He's nowhere in the book of Hebrews. Maybe I'd rather have political Jesus. 
You know, some of us need to wake up to the fact that our grandchildren aren't going to have pickup trucks and apple pie, okay? I need Jesus to show up to make sure my way of life growing up here in America is going to be preserved, doggone it. That Jesus isn't in Hebrews. Apparently, the Holy Spirit didn't think that was the key to enduring to the end. That we could have political systems that would align with our preferences, even if they're good preferences. That's not in Hebrews. Socialism, Jesus, isn't in Hebrews. Where we try to figure out how to equal wealth out all over the world and in our country. We're going to take from the rich, give it to the poor, jack this up. We're going to do racial equality. We're going to do economic equality. As though that is what I need in order to endure to the end. And to trust in God. That social Jesus is not in Hebrews. You know who's in Hebrews? The propitiating Jesus. The Jesus that Paul highlights in Romans is in Jesus. The one that immediately when you say, I got good news for you guys. You're enduring. You're going through difficulty in life. I've got good news for you. Oh, let me talk about righteousness and wrath. So that you can really understand just how good that news is. And some of us are going, I don't want to talk about that. The Holy Spirit wanted to talk about that. Inspired these words for you and I to understand how valuable is this Jesus that we're looking to. These things matter, right? So when we get to Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 9, here's that mission that Jesus is on. He's on a mission for propitiation. Hebrews 2 verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Then look in verse 14. Since therefore the children share In flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is part one of the mission. We did this last week if you weren't here. Why did he partake of these? Why did he come on this mission? Why was he for a little while lower than the angels? Why did he take on the form of a man? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong death. Slavely, For surely, it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So we got delivered and rescued from death's threats against us that stands in our lives every day. And death does this, doesn't it? And says, I'm going to take that from you. And I'm going to take that too. And I will take that one day as well. And that and him and her and this, oh, and you too. And that shadow is on us every day. And there's only one who can ever deliver us from that shadow. It's the Savior in Hebrews. Then in verse 17, this is why he was a little while lower than the angels. Therefore, he had to be made like the brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To do what? To make propitiation. For the sins of the people. Jesus, what mission were you on? I was here to make propitiation for your guilt and your sins. I was here to remove the anger of God against you. I drank the cup on your behalf so that you never would face the anger and fury of a holy God against your life. That's why I am here. How important must that be for us? And how crazy is it for us to jettison the idea that God could ever be angry or God could ever bring judgment? It sits at the center of everything Christianity is trying to satisfy. The idea that, well, sin is a problem. It messes up our world and our man-centered thinking. So Jesus needs to come and fix the sin problem. He needs to come fix that so that we can have a better life. That's true. But what's in this passage is that there is a God who is angry and opposed to, and he's righteous and he will not get around unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, he's a consuming fire. If he gets near unrighteousness, that 
needs to get solved if we ever want to be near to God. Leon Morris says, it is important to see that the wrath of God is a significant category in the New Testament. The process of salvation must accordingly take into account, listen, this aspect of the human predicament as well as other aspects. This is not the only thing Jesus is doing in his salvation, but it's big. Morris says, concepts we have looked at so far, such as the new covenant, redemption, or even reconciliation, do not adequately cover the overcoming of wrath. The propitiation words do not occur very often, but in view of the widespread occurrence of the wrath and the like, they must be given serious consideration as we reflect on what Christ's death has done for us. I know many of us totally get when we go to consider Jesus that I I need a Jesus who will forgive me. I need a Jesus who can solve the guilt that I feel for the things that I've done in my life. I need a Jesus who can step into the shame that's in my past. And, And we do, we need Jesus to do all those things. We need to be healed. We need acceptance. We need a love to flood our souls. How many of you guys would like that to be a fierce love? To flood your soul. An aggressive God who loves with fierceness to come and find me. I would like all that. But that's not the whole story. There's an aspect of my salvation that has to settle and solve the righteousness of God. John Stott said the blessings of such a great salvation. We talked about in Hebrews 2. Are so richly diverse that they cannot be neatly defined. Several pictures are needed to portray them. Just as the church of Christ is presented in scripture as a variety of ways, his bride, his body, sheep of God's flock, branches of his vine, his new humanity, his household or family, the temple of the Holy Spirit, pillar, buttress of the truth. So the salvation of Christ is illustrated by the vivid imagery of terms like propitiation, redemption, justification, reconciliation. This sits as a massively important understanding of what was Jesus doing when he came to this earth? What mission was he on? What am I being called upon to consider as I travel through this world and I do life and I have to endure the difficulties that it presents? Well, I'm being asked to consider the righteousness of God in this good news and the wrath of God that was mine, that Jesus Christ propitiated. He turned it away from me. And that's supposed to help me. And it does. It massively helps me. All right, so in just a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion in just a minute. Let me just read one last passage with us. And let it bleed into what we're about to do here in the communion celebration. And what this remembrance that we're about to do means to us. Consider Romans chapter 3 just for a second with me. Remember, Paul's going from Romans 1, Romans 2. Now he's Romans 3 and he's not budging from this issue. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the one we're asked to consider, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why'd you do that? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And by the way, when he was passing over them, what was he doing with his wrath? He was putting it in a cup. Every time, 
every sin, every righteous response to unrighteousness was put in a cup. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This, this is so big. The word propitiate is so big in ways that you can easily overlook it, right? Just go with me and give me a little bit of leverage on your heart here for a second. How big a deal in your salvation, right? You have this great salvation. How big a deal in your salvation, your understanding of salvation, how big a deal is righteousness? How big a deal is propitiation, the satisfying of God's anger and wrath against unrighteousness? How big a deal is that? Maybe when you got started with Jesus, there was something else about him that caught your attention. He was a healer. He could help you. He loved the down and out. He showed up in the down and out lives and he he poured out his love and his affection. He healed people restored aspects of their lives. But this is the righteous God doing these things. How big a deal is God's right? Do you tremble at the righteousness of God? Righteousness means all things are as they ought to be according to God. Does that get your attention? Everything is as it ought to be. When I come to God for salvation, do I get that? That everything reports back to the righteousness of God. See, if I get that, I might stop tampering with his creation. I might. I might never suggest that the God of the universe should be okay with same-sex marriage. I might never suggest that the righteous God of all eternity made a mistake when he made boys and girls. Listen, you got to lose righteousness before you start messing with this stuff. I might be a little bit more careful in whether I cheated on my taxes last year. Or I don't tithe. I don't give back to God. I just don't do that. If I had a righteous view of God and I understood the intensity of all that he is, I would handle these things a little differently, wouldn't I? Greed. Might handle that a little differently. Pornography, oh, it's just something on a screen. Might engage it a little bit differently if I understood the righteousness of God. How big a deal is this to today's version of Christianity? It's massive. And it makes sense that our world has convinced us that that's not what God is like. He's not like that. You understand his wrath is a product of his righteousness. So when you start ignoring wrath, it's because you've already ignored his righteousness. But I want that God to save me. And I I want him to be like this and like this and like this. And I'm going to lift my hands to that God, that one. It's not the real one. The real one did penalize sin and does still and what we're about to celebrate is because he penalized his own son because he doesn't sweep anything under the carpet he's righteous he's not some corrupt politician with power he's righteous one last thought David Wells. This is communion for us. And Pauline thought man is alienated from God by sin and God is alienated from man by wrath. It is in the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and wrath averted so that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Sin is expiated and God is propitiated. Give her thought.
you'd never be able to look on God without fear? Did you ever think about that? You're about to celebrate the reason why you can. Because another stood in our place and drank the cup of his wrath so that his anger would never be turned on me. Because it was turned on his son. Let me just encourage you. This is a serious thing we do. This is not some habit that churches do. This is a declaration that the one who drank the cup for me, I put my trust and my hope in him. That I don't fear God's judgment on me today because I have put all my hope in Jesus Christ to save me from my sin and to pay the price for my guilt. Listen, if that's not you and you're just a person who attends church, but you haven't entrusted your life to follow Jesus Christ and for him to be your Lord, then then do not go through the habit of eating this and taking this cup. It demeans its value. You would be better off not doing that today and sitting in your chair extremely uncomfortable and thinking, what have I done in response to what he did? You'd be better off doing that than just going through these motions today. But for all of you who have entrusted your life to Christ, to him paying the price for our sin, this is a celebration, a moment to remember what an impact this has had on our souls. It is the comfort the writer of Hebrews wanted for us to have as we endured. So if you guys will get up out of your sections, if you'll exit to your right and then come find a place to get communion this morning. We're going to wait for everybody to get served and we'll take communion together. I was a wretch I remember who I was I was lost, I was blind, I was running out of time, and sin separated, the breach was far too wide, but from the far side of the chasm, you held me in your sight, so you made a way. Across the great divide Left behind heaven's throne To build it here inside And there at the cross You paid the debt I owe Broke my chains, freed my soul For the first time I had hope Jesus, for the blood of God, thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life. You brought me from the darkness into
and they're to remind us as well. So there's bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ, his actual coming to earth in a body, right? And Hebrews tells us that. We see him for a little while. He's lower than the angels. And then it says this, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. There's something that had to happen. Jesus Christ had to become one of us. He had to be a man. Why? To pay the price for men. That's why he didn't come as an angel because he didn't pay a price for them. He took on everything it meant to be a man, a created creature called a man. He took it all on so that he could pay a price. His body could be beaten and scarred. He could actually have a physical presence into which God's judgment would fall in a moment. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed by who? By his father. Paying a penalty. It wasn't just gravity that crushed him. It was personal. It was the father setting the cup of his wrath on his own son. Does that help us a little bit? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How are we not with us? Help us endure. Give us freely all things. That's what we're reminded of today. Let's take the bread. The cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup Jesus sat with his disciples. It represented him shedding his own blood and establishing a new covenant for all who are included in him would then be included in God's wrath being turned away from them. Can you imagine Jesus pouring this cup and drinking it for the last time with his disciples? I'm not sure when he gets to the garden and he prays about the cup, I'm not sure he's thinking about this cup. He's thinking about that mysterious cup of the wrath of God having been stored up where God has patiently waited and waited and waited. And now Jesus is going to drink that cup. 
because this heavenly God is the God who delights in righteousness and justice and loving kindness all at the same time. How about you do this? How about I steal back a phrase so that the next time you hear it, you will think differently. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. I'm not sure what the world means by that. When you read the Bible, no justice, no peace. The cup you and I drink is the cup of the justice of God, having been satisfied by the one who now turns his anger away from us and instead blesses us with his goodness and his favor. Let's take the cup. Lord, we thank you this morning for pulling back the veil a little bit more and letting us see through the wonder of your word inspired truth to get you a little bit better in sight. Lord, would you help us with the mystery of a God so furious in all categories? Would you train our hearts not to despise what you delight in? God, we love everything about you. We love your love. We love your grace and mercy. We love your forbearance and your patience. We love your justice. We love your righteousness. And we are humbled to belong to you. Lord, thank you for the cross and all that it means to us as we go to live our lives and endure in this fallen world. Lord, it means everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys and you guys who are watching this week. Look forward to seeing you. Hey, if there is a need in your life that you would like some prayer for, whatever that may be, just a moment you need the Lord to come near to you. Come find the prayer partner and just let them pray for you this morning. They'll be hanging out here in the front and you're welcome to come bring any need to them and help them to pray for you. See you guys next week.